The United Nations has said that it's to investigate the death of Italy's ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo and his bodyguard and their driver when the UN convoy they were travelling in was ambushed on Monday. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau becomes the first foreign leader to formally meet US President Joe Biden in a virtual summit between the two leaders yesterday. And all aboard the night jet as the carriages for Austria's pan-European night train service are unveiled. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 24th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today from Midori House in London are Monocle's news editor Chris Chermack and our culture editor Chiara Rimella. Chiara, Chris, great to have you both with us once again on the programme today. How's the week? We are halfway through the week so how's it shaping up for you both so far? Chiara, let's start with you. Uh, Well, Thomas, I've got to say that work aside, this has been a bit of a throwback week for me because in cinematic purposes, I've really kind of gone back into the archive um, and just watched a few real classics, you know, the likes of Clueless, Mean Girls, um, you know, just just really topping the the golden standard in international cinema, and um, and it's been great. I also watched the first Pierce Brosnan Double um, uh, O Seven at the weekend, so that I guess was the pinnacle of cinematic achievement. Oh, Goldeneye, such a terrific movie! Yes, it hasn't aged very well though. Actually, I also rewatched it relatively recently. And it has it has hasn't aged well. It has I don't know. Discuss. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Chris Chermak, how about you? Have you been delving into the archives of the silver screen in these uh, continuing lockdown days in London? Uh, I haven't been delving too much this week. Uh, I admit to to give uh, on my side some some work stuff. It's been quite a humbling week, frankly, because I had the opportunity to interview both the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Tony Blair. So it's been quite a crazy week, frankly. It's not, you know, I wish I could say this was, you know, normal here at Monocle or in my journalistic career. But I did watch Clueless this week, so I guess it's, um, it's, you know, me and Chris one against each other. It's it's a tough call. It's a tough call. And GoldenEye is an amazing movie, so, you know. (laughs) Antonio Guterres, um, Tony Blair and the cast of Clueless. That sounds like a fantasy dinner party or one of those sort of games there. Maybe we can assemble that at some point over the coming months. But Chris Chermak and Chiara Romella, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, the United Nations said yesterday that it's to launch a review into its security following the ambush on a UN convoy on Monday in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which killed Italy's ambassador to the country, Luca Antanasio. He was 43 years old. A member of the ambassador's Italian military security detail, Vittorio Icovacci, and a Congolese driver who's been named by local media as Mustafa Milambo were also killed. Chiara, both Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi and the President Sergio Mattarella have expressed their condolences to the families of those who died in the attack on Monday. But how keenly would you say this event is being felt more broadly across Italy? It's interesting, actually, because so far the narrative around the events of Monday has focused largely on the 
loss of human life. And so lots of tributes to um, Atanasio himself, his role in the region, understanding the character and what he had been doing in uh, the DRC. And uh, I think for many people in Italy, um, it's definitely not kind of foreign news that comes up very frequently. So a lot of background information on the region, but primarily tributes to the man himself. And he's been widely praised across the media as somebody who was very much on the ground, understood the importance and the role of um, the ambassador. He he had received the Nasriya Prize for Peace in 2020. And during an interview following being awarded the prize, he, he said that he knew that the ambassadors was a potentially dangerous job, but that it was important to set an example. So a lot of um, attention has been focused around that. I will say that, interestingly, this has also brought up a discussion around the kinds of diplomats and ambassadors that Italy does have around the world. I think there was a lot of preconception around the the role of the ambassador and the face of the ambassadors around the, country, around the, the world. And there's an interesting story on La Repubblica, for example, about um, all these different young diplomats around the world who are very far from kind of living in golden, you know, gilded cages and throwing canapé and champagne parties, but actually very much being involved in missions um, around the world. And so I think it's actually awakened a sense of admiration for a lot of these people. And you'd think that there would be a wider discussion as to Italy's involvement in um, different problematic regions around the world, you could expect some degree of criticism as to, you know, money spent and all those kind of collateral and, and the human cost of these missions. Um, actually, there I've read some comment and opinion pieces saying that the events actually call for, if anything, more involvement because clearly the situation is tragic and not resolved and therefore it renews the importance of the presence on the ground. Interestingly, Italy only in 2020 renewed actually its kind of strategic commitment to a lot of regions in Africa, um, more so than the DRC. Um, it's renewed its commitment to the sub-Saharan region, um, send, you know, committing to sending more personnel there. Um, so there is clearly, you know, an interest from the point of view of Italy of being involved in the region. O- obviously. You know, Africa is on Italy's doorstep and through the migration routes that come through the Mediterranean, it's a problem that, you know, is persistently, you know, in the face of of Italy and something that therefore... I think is important that it contributes to um, helping and resolving. It's also interesting that there has been a, a focus on also on understanding where the responsibility lies, and you know, obviously, with um, the attack being carried out while Satanasio and the convoy was, you know, under in a UN convoy, um, it's perhaps easier on the part of the Italian authorities to just look to the UN for answers and for responsibility. So lots of analysis of how it could happen, why that road was considered secure, why they were traveling in a specific kind of vehicle, um, etc, etc. Let's remember that it's not so usual 
that top diplomats are, you know, targeted in attacks of this kind. But the the area itself is clearly very dangerous. And normally these attacks are waged at civilians. So it's also important that we look at the diplomatic side of things, but also to the tragedy on the ground that carries on constantly. And Chris, as Kiara said there, all eyes are on the UN now. It did announce yesterday that it was going to review the security into its missions overseas. But what do you think in reality the UN can do here now following the attack on Monday? Well, as as Kiara sort of alluded to there, it is very difficult in in some ways because it is the nature of operating in in a war region like that. Um, And I can say, you know, the UN obviously condemned the attack and... uh, like uh, Chiara was saying about Italy, um, has said that it will remain and if anything should, you know, step up its involvement in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, Antonio Guterres himself, you know, has in the past called for peacekeeping to be made stronger and safer. Um, And, you know, without giving too much away from our interview, uh, which will feature in April, um, you know, he did talk about that he was actually quite proud of the improved peacekeeping capacity uh, of the UN. And um, and he really believed that uh, the UN agencies were a good example of efficiency at this point, um, you know, and he has called for stepped up peacekeeping operations in many parts of the world, particularly in Africa. One thing I'd add that he also uh, alluded to um, is... Um, really pushing for stepped-up regional involvement. Um, He did welcome and feel that the UN is working quite well with the African Union, for example, but he also, you know, that that was one of the points, I think, to be made, that when it comes to to security and these kinds of operations, the more locally led they are, if you will, um, the better. So so those are some of the ways, if you will, that the UN is is trying to counter um, um, these kinds of things. But but as said, I think they have made efforts over the last few years to improve their peacekeeping operations. Um, you know, these, these kinds of events uh, are always going to happen um, in, in regions like this. I don't think it's, it's, you know, it's not possible to avoid them completely. But of course, you know, there, there will also be an investigation into this very specific one to see if anything, you know, in that sense, anything specifically was done wrong that they can learn from in this case and uh, move on from there. Well, next here on the late edition, Joe Biden held his first official bilateral meeting with a foreign leader yesterday, and that leader was Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Chris Chiara will discuss in a bit more detail shortly what was on the agenda yesterday, but I wanted us to hear just a part of President Biden's statement from the White House at the end of the meeting, because I think it might be the most significant part of what was said yesterday for a Canadian audience, at least. He said explicitly that the US would assist in trying to secure the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, uh, the two Canadian men who've been in custody in China since December 2018. Now, the imprisonment of the two Michaels, as they refer to in Canada, is widely seen as a retaliation for Canada's detention of the Huawei executive, Meng Wangzhou. She's been under house arrest in Vancouver, in a Vancouver mansion, I should say, since late 2018. Let's hear what President Biden had to say on the matter yesterday. Human beings are not bartering chips. You know, we're going to work together until we get their safe return. Canada and the United States will stand together against abuse of universal rights 
and democratic freedoms. We're going to strengthen our shared commitment to providing safe haven for refugees and asylum seekers, and so much more. The United States is no closer and no more important friend than Canada. Our nations share a close geography and history that will forever bind us together, but our values are even more consequential. But it's the shared spirit of our people that's going to ensure ours is a future of hope and opportunity. Canadians and Americans are innovative, creative, entrepreneurial, competitive, open-hearted, and rights-respecting. There's nothing we cannot achieve when we commit ourselves to it. And when we work together, as the closest of friends should, we only make each other stronger. President Biden there speaking some very warm words indeed towards his counterpart in Canada, Justin Trudeau, at the White House yesterday. Uh, Chris, uh, what did you make of what was said between the two leaders yesterday? I suppose something that struck me was the tone, just how effusive both leaders were about their country's respective relationships with, with the other. You know, Thomas, I, I do think uh, you're, you're right. Certainly the tone between the two leaders was was quite striking, especially, of course, in contrast to the uh, last four years. I, I will say at the same time, though, personally, what struck me was, uh, you know, this, this emphasis on tone, while at the same time there are some really major disagreements, it has to be said, between the U.S. and Canada at this moment in time. And so it did, you know, not not to uh, praise Donald Trump necessarily, if you will, but at least, you know, when it came to Donald Trump, you kind of knew what the issues were. Whereas in this case, it did feel like the tone was papering over uh, some of those differences, uh, on, you know, below there, um, particularly things like, you know, uh, when it came to the pandemic, for example, both talked about international cooperation um, in terms of vaccine distribution. And yet there's this actually quite big dispute between the two countries because Canada is trying to get its hands on vaccines made by Pfizer from a plant in Michigan. And the U.S. is saying, well, we're going to vaccinate our people first. Um, and another example, you know, that's, that struck me is is climate change, because that was one that both leaders focused on very strongly. They launched this high-profile, you know, ministerial between the two countries to address climate change. Uh, and, you know, Justin Trudeau made this sort of remark about um, it being nice that they don't have to have statements where climate change is taken out anymore by the U.S. And yet at the same time, you know, it was uh, Joe Biden who nixed uh, the Keystone XL pipeline that was important to Canada uh, for the uh, production of oil or moving of oil from Canada to the U.S., which was something that, you know, caught uh, Justin Trudeau a bit unawares. So in that sense, I just, the, the disagreements below the surface, I do find quite interesting. I'm curious what, what you thought, Thomas, yourself about uh, the speech and how it's, uh, or the, uh, about the bilateral and how it's been received in Canada. I think the papering over, Chris, is a really beautiful way of putting it. But I think what struck me is that, you know, you argued that at least with Donald Trump, you knew there was going to be some kind of bull in some kind of China shop somewhere. But with Justin Trudeau, it feels like he's quite good at sort of, you know, playing the diplomatic part, 
both in a negotiating point of view, but also I think in a, you know, in a government and a sort of relationship point of view with other other leaders. So I felt that actually for Trudeau, who, you know, is having a bit of bother back at home, to be able to have this very warm, very effusive meeting and conversation with President Biden, I think is is pretty good for him to, you know, for a domestic audience to see that because it is, you know, hard to overstate how frustrated people are with just how fragmented the vaccine rollout continues to be in Canada. As you said, quite rightly, Canada doesn't have its own manufacturing capabilities for any of the vaccines. It's approved so far on its own soil. Uh, They have tried to counter that by saying that they will adapt a factory uh, near Montreal to be able to produce its own doses of the vaccines that they've approved. But again, that seems to be, it's very unclear kind of what the process of getting that factory up and running is. And then you have things like traveller quarantines that are coming in. There are lots of issues with those. People even arguing whether Canada really needs those, whether it's actually kind of the movement of people within the country already that is actually causing the problem. So I thought it was kind of a very interesting very warm and fuzzy in a way without being too frivolous about it kind of meeting between the two and you're right there are lots of challenges but I do feel as though Justin Trudeau will almost certainly have a sigh of relief, I think, and his deputy, Christia Freeland, who, of course, helmed the NAFTA renegotiations during Donald Trump's term in office, which was a, you know, hugely fraught process out of which Canada really held firm and did rather well. So I think it will be interesting to see. And I think the sort of maybe I'll bring this point to you now, Chiara, but the idea of tradition and formality, of course, it has been tradition for quite some time for a new US president to visit Canada first, the first international trip they make. Donald Trump obviously ignored that and went to Saudi Arabia first. But what do you make of these kind of small sort of, you know, recognitions, I guess, of precedent, diplomatic precedent and the the shared history between countries, especially when there's so much tumult in relationships in, in so many parts of the world. Do you think that actually, you know, Joe Biden initiating this first meeting with Justin Trudeau yesterday actually does have, have some kind of importance to it? Yes, of course. I mean, I think that um, these symbolic uh, moments belie a lot more importance um, underneath them. Um, I mean, it's not just about this meeting. You know, Trudeau was the first to call Biden to congratulate him on the victory. And Biden called Trudeau as the first person um, after he took office. So clearly there is, you know, a a clear intent in re-establishing that relationship. Um, But, you know, sometimes it's also things that may appear less important than a very official bilateral meeting or a very official visit that matter to uh, an international international diplomatic relationship as well. I was talking uh, to Chris just before the programme about, for example, the incident um, regarding the Winston Churchill statue at the White House, you know, supposedly Biden's decided not to show it. And the UK is saying, it's okay, you know, we don't take offence, he's got the right to decorate as much as he wants and what with whatever he wants. But Boris Johnson himself had in the past penned a really kind of incendiary op-ed um, around Obama's uh, decision to not display it in, in his office. It then turned out that Obama had moved it somewhere else. But anyway, he had said some pretty offensive things at the time. So clearly just even this, this statuette holds in itself such um, incredible kind of symbolic diplomatic power. Um 
you know, and, and when you look back at the UK's relationship with the US, with Brexit happening as well, clearly there's a lot of hunger on the point of view of the UK in establishing this, you know, special friendship with the US. Um, whether the affection will be re- reciprocated is is to be understood, obviously, Theresa May back in 2017 was the first foreign leader to visit Donald Trump in the White House. Shinzo Abe had already had already been, but he'd only gone to uh, Trump Tower, so not in the whole, in the White House. But Theresa May went, and we all remember the awkward images of the hand holding you know they they have kind of been burned in the memories of many and Theresa May has actually brought them up um, quite recently saying how you know awkward she felt about it how she had to call her husband straight after it happened because she felt so uncomfortable about it um I would say all these things obviously really matter. And we'll have to see, I guess, when Boris does get to meet Biden, um, what kind of special relationship they might be able to strike up. The handshakes, <laughs> my, I remember all of those handshake questions in Trump's day. I don't think we have that anymore, do we? Well, finally here on the late edition, let's hop aboard the night train because Austria's federal rail company and Siemens have unveiled the new carriages for Austria's Nightjet, the overnight rail service in the country. Uh, Chris, this is your home turf. So uh, let's start with you. The design of these from the photographs I've seen today look pretty terrific, don't they? Give us a quick whistle stop tour, if you could, of what these new carriages offer. Sure, Thomas. Yes, this is my other home turf, if you will. I'll put my Austrian hat on for this. And uh, yes, it is uh, It is nice to see. I remember personally uh, taking uh, quite a few years ago now uh, a night train through Germany that uh, did not feel particularly modern uh, at the time. So it is very nice to see these updated uh, trains that are coming out of of Austria's federal railways, the ÖBB. And, um, you know, they've really kind of spearheaded this effort in Europe over the last few years to revive uh, night travel. Um, And you've seen sort of other railway operators come on board since Austria relaunched this in uh, 2016. And yes, the new new trains from the design uh, do look quite swanky. There will be, you know... Things like mini suites um, uh, for people as well, couchette cars, um, as well as sleeping cars. Um, and so, yes, I think it will be a more luxurious, a more glamorous way to travel by train if one so chooses. And I'm personally, you know, very much a fan of train travel when I did live uh, in Berlin uh, as well as in Frankfurt. You know, I, I took the train um, quite regularly. Um, but yes, I did take it more during the day than the night trains because they just didn't have quite the same standard as the day trains. Um, so yes, it's a nice thing to see. And I should, you know, aside from the design, you know, it is important to mention that part of this, you know, it's also financed by the Austrian government in part because train travel is seen as a more a, a greener, a cl- more climate-friendly way of traveling as all these countries are trying to reduce uh, their climate emissions. So yes, it's an exciting thing to uh, to watch. Uh, the first trains will be coming online next year, mainly traveling uh, first between Austria and Germany and Italy. But then there's about 20 routes uh, throughout Europe that are planned uh, from there. So uh, I'll be happy to test out and report back as soon as they're online. 
Do send us a postcard, Chris. And Kiara, any journeys that you've taken over the years aboard a night train? And any details, I guess, that, that might have made the journey a little comfier or that really stood out as having them made the journey pretty special for whatever reason? I'm very glad, Thomas, that you've come to me with this light ender question because I'm <laughs> going to deliver the goods, I think, in kind of comedy potential. I knew you wouldn't disappoint. Well, my childhood brings up memories of uh, night trains back in Italy and those did not have the, I guess, most comfortable reputation back at the time. Though they've always had some sort of kind of inherent glamour because one of the most... Um, I guess popular routes is the one that goes from Milan to Palermo in Sicily. So you sleep through the night and then you wake up and you see the sea and then you have to go through the channel. So the train stops and then it gets put onto a boat. Then So the train is onto a boat and you disembark in Sicily. It's quite adventurous in its own way. But I have to say that the most recent memory of a night train experience uh, actually happened here in the UK. Um, when I had to board a night Riviera sleeper to go from London Padding to Cornwall and um, I think I guess back in the day um, it must have been my student days so I wasn't quite so willing to shell out on a proper ticket so I got just a seated ticket um, I'm, you know unaware of what was to come um, the seats had dividers in between them that you couldn't bring up so there was no chance of kind of sitting sideways catching a moment's sleep not only that but also uh, the lights were on for the entirety of the journey which seems pretty peculiar for a night train or also called a sleeper train so the clue should be in the name but not so for us poor passengers in the normal seats and I also remember disembarking at Liscard uh, station at 6.05 in the morning waiting for um, I guess uh, my friends to come pick me up at the time obviously quite early in the morning they hadn't quite woken up yet I was um, in this tiny tiny railway station just two platforms obviously everything shut <laughs> abandoned as the only passenger on the side of the tracks so my recommendation for any sleeper train service in the future is you know even if it is just a, the seat um you know, uh, tickets and not the proper couchettes and not the proper cabins, please, please make them comfortable because uh, everyone has a right to a night's sleep. Do switch off the lights. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that would be a really pretty excellent start. <laughs> <laughs> Top tips for a night rail journey of dreams there from Chiara Rumella and to Chris Chermak too. Thanks to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That's all we have time for for today's show. A big thank you too to Sam Impey in London, who edited today's programme. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for more news, don't miss The Globalist here on Monocle 24. That begins live from Midori House at 7am London time. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Monocle.